0: Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorn, action movie screenwriter.
1: And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster.
0: And Together, we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard.
1: Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse.
0: Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere.
1: Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies, and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre.
0: So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard... Ooh, very nice. ...then Die Hard on a Blank is for you! Yes, you, personally!
1: Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, dropped December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now
0: we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho,
1: ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fergopoulos.
2: I'm Melissa Wilkinson.
0: <gasps>
1: Whoa! And this is Oovre Busters. Yes. Uh, deep dives by dialectical dudes. The um, the tagline that I keep trying to make happen, whether it it happens or not, it's gonna we'll happen, have to man. see. Well, um, I have these
0: boxes filled with T-shirts with that slogan, so. <laughs> I've been trying to move them for the last like 2 it's, it's, weeks. The problem
1: is the DD looks like the Dunkin Donuts logo, so we're going to be like in a terrible copyright trademark war with them.
0: I owe I owe some suspicious looking dudes at the T-shirt factory thousands of dollars, and if I don't start paying them back, they are I like
1: that it's your cousins in Astoria that are making t- these T-shirts. Some shady Greek
0: guys, yeah, are like it's like, "Hey, where's the money? I don't care that you're family. I gave you 5,000 <laughs> T-shirts. I expect a return on my investment."
1: Like, God damn it
0: <laughs> Come on Stavros Come on We'll sell
1: them on Patreon Remember when we started the show And we didn't st- We just get goofed for a minute And Alyssa was just sitting there Hi Alyssa Thanks <laughs> for, Hello <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for uh, Thanks for joining us for the podcast This is really yeah, great um, I'm glad I could Yeah it's gonna be really fun And it's I mean it's It's quite a movie to talk about Do you mind if I Read your bio quickly So everyone sure. knows Cool Alyssa Wilkinson is Vox.com's film critic And associate professor of English and humanities At the King's College in New York City, she's also a member of the New York Film Critics Circle and the National Society of Film Critics. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having
1: yeah, me. Thanks for being. Of course, here. we're we're really happy to have you, and it's good to have another George. You keep getting academics this season. I know. You Keep <laughs> having fellow fellow <laughs> academics. You're
0: outnumbered once again, Liam. Two to one.
1: I am. <laughs> I I am. Well, at least
2: I I'm not a Kurosawa uh, scholar, so you can you can just pretend <laughs> I. I'm a a dilettante in this. I'm a
0: dilettante in everything I do as well.
1: Yeah, you (laughs) really are. It's it's terrible. It's embarrassing. I I try to be one. Um, (laughs) Speaking of Kurosawa, George, what movie are we talking about today?
0: we are discussing 1950s Rashomon. Um, I don't know if people have heard of this film before, but it's a it's a small little, uh, a
1: little little known independent, yeah, <laughs> <film from laughs> little Japan.
0: known independent, one of the greatest films ever made. So Rajman tells the story, or it begins with uh, three men: a woodcutter, a priest, and a listener or a cynic, waiting out a storm. And I guess we should also talk about kind of the archetypal or allegorical kind of. Uh, figures of these like three anonymous people. Um, and basically the woodcutter and the priest begin to recount their involvement regarding the murder of a samurai and the rape of the samurai's wife by a bandit by the name of Tajo Maru. The film then begins to give us the perspective of all four of the people involved directly in the crime and its aftermath. And obviously what we find out is that everybody has a very, very varying um, and different take on what in fact happened in the forest regarding the murder and the rape of the samurai's wife. Um, eventually the film ends with, of course, like no real objective truth or understanding of who is, whose story is the right story or the one closest to the truth. The three men then hear the crying of a baby. The listener then steals something from the crying child, an amulet that is supposedly protecting it and, or the kimono actually. Right? Yeah. That steals his yes. kimono. Yeah. From the baby. Uh, the woodcutter then intervenes and basically tells uh the priest that he will take care of the baby because he already has six children and this kind of final act of generosity or humanity reinstills faith into uh gives the priest kind of a renewed sense of faith that he has been lacking uh for the entirety of the film and the storm ends and so does the film yeah
1: yeah the end very very the <laughs> the end, end <laughs> um, it was directed and edited by Akira Kurosawa, produced by Minoru Jingo. The screenplay was by Akira Kurosawa and Shinobu Hashimoto. It's based on two short stories, uh, one called In a Grove, and the other, the t- mostly the title is pulled from Rashomon by Ryunosuke Akutagawa. Um, the music is by Fumio Hayazaka, who did a lot of music for Kurosawa films, and the cinematography, which is like. Among I think the most influential Mm -hmm. Pieces of I mean cinematography Of all time and it's amazing amazing. to look back and watch It Mm -hmm. is by Kazu Miyagawa um the cast includes a, the Kurusawa mainstays Takashi Shimura as Kikori, the woodcutter, Minoru Chiaki as Tabhoshi, the priest, Kichiro Uida as the listener, or also described as a common person, <laughs> um, Toshiro Mufune uh, as Tajumaru, the bandit, Machiko Kyo as the samurai's wife, Masayuki Mori as the samurai, who's the husband of... The wife, <laughs> I wish there was a better descriptor. <laughs> and Noriko Honma as Miko, the medium. Um, it was a really low budget movie, but most of the money was set on the massive gate, that Rashomon gate that existed between um, Kyoto and Naru, uh, Nara. Sorry, sorry. Um, it gets credit, the film, for being the first to point the camera right at the sun. Um, and there's actually an interesting interview with Robert Altman where he saw this movie. Mm-hmm. And then the next day pointed the camera at the sun because he was Mm -hmm. so like blown away by it. Um, Whether that's true or not, it's the film that gets credit for it.
2: I mean, whether it's true or not seems less important when you're talking about the movie Rashomon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: It's just so like it's funny because you read all these things and people are like, "Well, it's not true," but you're like, "Doesn't does it matter? It doesn't really matter." It's the point, yes, exactly. Um, Kurosawa was uh, wanted to make was reaching back to silent cinema to make this movie, and Rashomon was like he described it as kind of research or an experiment, which is a hmm. incredible way to describe like a perfectly created work of art that's like as research it's really fascinating um Daye, the company that financed it was reluctant to do so but then in a very rashomon-esque thing the producer or the the exec at daya then said like oh i knew the film was going to be a hit i knew it was going to be great despite being like very reluctant um <laughs> the, the ending was so shocking to people that they wanted to know what the actual what actually happened in the woods which is so incredible To think about. And I feel like, interestingly, it feels like things have swung back that way culturally. So it'd be an interesting thing to talk about. Um, It won the Grand Prix at Venice, beating, I can't believe this list, Renoir's The River, Brasson's Diary of a Country Priest, Elia Kazan's A Streetcar Named Desire, and Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. Can you imagine? It's quite a
2: lineup <laughs>
1: it's incredible um so yes this is a important film um this isn't in the notes but i think one of the my favorite simpsons jokes of all time is home is marge telling homer homer you liked rashomon <laughs> his responses that's not how i remember it <laughs> oh, <laughs> anytime the simpsons. we can talk about the simpsons we should <laughs> um alissa what uh, what what did you think of the film I i think you said you saw it recently for the first time
2: yeah, I, I realized at some point that while I knew a lot about this movie, like I knew who made it, and I knew why it was significant, and I knew the plot, I like had not actually seen the movie. Um, And wow. so, yeah, so back in, pff, I think, January, maybe, um, it played as part of some program at Metrograph, um, the, the theater in New York, and I had a habit, if I had a free evening of stopping by and seeing whatever movie was playing before I went home if I hadn't seen it already um so I saw it there um it was both very much the same and quite different from what I had perceived it to be like I knew what it looked like I knew who was in it I kind of knew all that kind of stuff but I I hadn't realized how mm, I don't really know what the right word is but I hadn't I guess I hadn't realized how much time like passes in the movie Mm. (laughs) Um, and how significant that is, I think for the different recountings of the story. Um, And I don't think I knew about the framing device and this idea about Mm. someone's faith in humanity being shaken um, and being restored. That kind of struck me. And then, um, and then, yeah, I rewatched it yesterday uh, for this podcast and um, was struck again by those things um, also kind of watched some of the features and realized things that I hadn't really thought about. How did they pull off, um, certain shots, uh, you know, that's not maybe something that I always, I am always thinking about cause I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that much about cinematography. I just know that I look at it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. It's great. I, it's not. It's definitely a movie that you have to kind of psych yourself up for like I think I got over and I thought that was 90 minutes it definitely felt longer than 90 minutes but I don't think it's a bad thing at all I think what that says is the movie makes you kind of experience time differently um, than you do in your normal life. Um, so yeah, that's that. That's how I I think about it. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean it, that's it's it's really I, I definitely coming back to that idea of like experiencing time. This is really distinct, mm-hmm. George. In your notes, you wrote lukewarm, which yeah. I really hope is a joke. I was just kind of like, this, yeah, this
0: film's so. It's I so, don't know about this one. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> buy into the forest <laughs> backdrop for some strange reason. No, this. So uh, this is I think only the second time I've seen this. And I remember the first time I watched it, I remember really enjoying it. And I was eager to sit down and watch it again. And yeah, I was just completely riveted from the very, very beginning. And I was just like, just totally taken by it. This film is amazing. It's also one of those films for me where the hype definitely lives up to um, the experience of watching it. And I think what really struck me this time around was, well, I guess a couple of things. Um and I didn't really think about this until like rather late but I was like what are we supposed to also make of the fact that we're getting all of these stories maybe perhaps directly through the woodcutter himself as well so that there's another kind of layer of let's say mistrust or perhaps misunderstanding that we need to kind of like wade through and make sense of. But beyond that too, one thing that really stood out to me this time was kind of the confrontation with the camera, right? I totally forgot that so much of like what this film is, is the actors speaking directly to the camera. And you don't hear these interlocutors, you don't hear these judges or these prosecutors, whoever they are interviewing them. And I thought the confrontational aspect of that was really fascinating. And I do remember hating the very very the the ending a little bit when i was when the first time i saw it and i still think it's probably the weakest part of the film and from my understanding Kurosawa was forced to uh, make that ending right to include the really? baby that's what i remember the reading sort of, somewhere yeah
1: oh interesting i didn't catch that in the stuff i was reading that the, but that the
0: film was so bleak that the producers basically said like oh
1: you're right you, there was a push you're right i do remember reading that now yeah
0: that you need to give us something give the audience something and he was like what about a baby and the producer's like, everybody loves a baby. Run with Deus it. X
1: baby. baby. Yeah, for sure. But
0: I, yeah, again, I just love this film.
1: Um, it's interesting. I didn't think of it until this exact moment, but the interi- one, in the reading that I was doing, the idea that Kurosawa was reaching back to like French silent cinema is really interesting in terms of making mm-hmm. it. And though it's not French, I thought a little bit when you mentioned the sort of like confrontational nature of the interrogation of the... Um, passion of Joan of Arc.
0: Mm. Yeah. With that the film, where yeah. there's,
1: you know, it's, it's based on, which I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember being completely blown away by, um, even despite watching it on like a 12 inch TV in my dorm room in college. But the, uh, the fact that it's so the, it, the text of that film is just taken from the trial and it's mostly clo- close ups of Renee Falconetti and the judges it just made me think of it. Um, I love this movie a lot. Um, I saw it for the first time, like, maybe... I saw it for the first time w- in, like, my second year in New York City. So, that would have been, like, 12, 13 years ago. Um, and I remember being, like, very disturbed by it, <laughs> which I thought was pretty amazing because it's from 1950. Like, I remember getting... Particularly the sequence with the the medium. I found that, like, very, yes. very troubling. Yeah. Um And then it was one of those films where this is the kind of time I had Then it ended, and I think I watched it again. Like, I think Mm -hmm. it ended, and I just said, I'm going to watch this again. Um, Rewatching it this week, I found it uh, still pretty disturbing. Um, And I was really, really struck, Alyssa, sort of as you brought up, by the framing device. The framing device Mm -hmm. did not stick in my head um, when I saw it. Initially, I don't. It just wasn't something I thought of. So when it started with the with the with the Rashomon gate, I was like, oh, and these guys at the gate, I was like, oh yeah, this is in the movie, which is kind of crazy because the title comes from the Rashomon gate, and I I just like, I, yeah, the framing device. It's almost like, as you said, George, the, it it adds to the complexity of the subjectivity of this movie, and I, I think it's something we should talk into, which is like, there to me there's obviously no reliable narrator but there's not even a reliability in what we get from the characters and so yeah i was just i was blown away by it and i think i find it like incredibly challenging you know 70 years later it came out 70 years ago like this week or something Mm -hmm. like that which is crazy timing but yeah i just uh, it's it's amazing i feel like that's what i have to say cool (laughs) podcast over let's move on um what do you guys, how do you feel about that framing device? Does it work for you?
2: One thing I love about it is that uh, is the, the rain, which I'm sure we're going to talk yeah. about, but like the fact that that is kind of a significant part of the framing device, that it's just like pouring down rain outside and they're stuck in this mm-hmm. hut and they've got to like discover the meaning of life kind of accidentally or, or the meaning of humanity through <laughs> these stories. Um, so that works. And I do feel like. Like if I didn't have it, I might not know why I had just watched this. Um, I don't know. Mm. I don't know how much I love what happens at the end, um, but that doesn't really matter. I think that the framing device gives me a sense for like why it matters, why it would matter to tell this kind of a story, um, and why it would matter to tell it in a visual medium. That there's there's kind of like an essential uh, human need to you know, like kind of a basic Mm -hmm. need to be able to trust other people a little bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And also uh, alongside that is the need to find a way to maintain maybe your faith in humanity, even knowing that actually this is how things are, right? Like any story you get is always through someone's perspective, even if they're trying very hard to be perfectly truthful. We don't have, um, we don't have, The cinema eye view on reality like nobody's recording reality the way that we um you know that we might sort of look at reality on a movie screen so that works for me um Mm. from that perspective just kind of adding like a humanistic element to all of that because otherwise it's real bleak
1: (laughs) it's so bleak yeah it also like it, it begs an interesting question like which makes me one of the things that that's interesting is, like, this film, like, we sort of alluded to, it sort of teaches you how to watch it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it made me think... I, I feel like I make this comparison too much on the show, but it makes me think a lot about, about um, Jean Dillman, Chantal Ackerman's movie, which mm-hmm. you spend, like, the first 25 minutes, at minimum, being, like, what, sort of staring at the screen, like, what? what am, I it, watching? It, what am I, Why am I watching this woman yes. bake bread? Mm-hmm. But then suddenly something shifts, and... Yep it It sort of makes me think about the role of the of the director in a film like this, because what else you need a framing device? Like what mm-hmm. else how else do you attempt to tell the story in this movie? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, at some point, it's funny you should say that too, because at some point I was like, oh, what this film is about is about the experience of taking in any work of art or like cinema in particular, obviously for us, mm-hmm. so that the kind of fragmentary huh. nature is basically. The fragmentary, the fragmentary kind of um, experience that we all have when we um, take in a work of art, we will mm-hmm. all experience it in, in a different kind of way. Obviously, that's not the only thing this film is about, but it came. To, <laughs> that's it. That's it. But it came to me thinking about the kind of confrontational nature again of the actors in front of the camera and thinking about them obviously looking at us as an audience and then asking us to kind of consider what it is that we're watching in that kind of very engaged and active way, which Jean Delman mm-hmm. also does too, but like obviously in a completely, completely different way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things, and we talked, we've talked, we talked about this is sort of becoming a, an ongoing thread in this season, and we talked about it in our Quiet Duel episode, is that it feels sometimes like not all... I don't... I don't I hesitate to say this like in a negative way but sometimes it feels like not necessarily a ton of things are happening but uh Kira Kurosawa is maybe one of the great filmmakers and this is one of the great movies about people looking at things. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's so much material, so much so many sequences and so many camera moves that swing around to show someone watching what's happening. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I feel um on some and and of course then there's the moments when they're when they're when the people giving testimony are like looking sort of at the audience like I feel like this is a movie that that works in that you're watching and they're watching you and you're watching it's it just sort of blows me away in that regard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of how we look about things and and feeling implicated in the yeah. experience of watching the movie
0: for sure
2: yeah I think there's also a sense in which um, well. And I would have to go back and study it pretty closely, although I'm sure someone else has already. But um, sometimes I, we're in someone's imagination, and sometimes we're watching. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it and uh, it feels like it has something to do with how it's edited. Um, in that the you know the luck kind of the last sequence um, when there's a fight, that fight goes on forever. Ever um, in forever and ever and it never really there's no like time jumping it's just and it's like oh yeah he's in the bush watching this happen of course we're still getting it filtered through his storytelling but it's a it feels a little different from the earlier tellings of it in which um things feel a little more fluid or mm-hmm. you know like people don't keep falling down like they do when he yes. tells it's yeah. like
0: falls. Yeah. yeah they're <laughs> totally incompetent fighters yeah which is amazing yes.
2: And they're like running away from each other and they're scared and they're very sweaty. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that to me is really interesting as well as sort of a part of the whole here and of part of the idea of looking and how we look with our mind's eyes and our actual eyes. And, yeah.
1: Yeah, it. I guess that one thing that doesn't necessarily and I I think the the thing when we think about this movie, like you said before, like, I feel like I knew what this movie was before I saw Mm -hmm. it. Like, you know, we it's so like ingrained culturally, we've seen so many different, you know, incarnations of this. But the thing that makes it amazing is that it is really fluid in terms of the whose experience we're having. And like, sometimes we're hearing voiceover, sometimes we're seeing things happen. And I feel as though that's so sort of surprising. And you don't, you're not able to kind of like take, I can see why when people saw this in 1950, they were like, but what actually happened? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think is quietly provocative about the, the woodcutters take on the story. And like, maybe this is, maybe this is not exactly what's intended, but the thing that I I took away the fourth time with the wood or took away with the fourth story, the woodcutter's perspective is we never see the woodcutter. Mm-hmm. In any hmm. other movie, there would be a reaction shot of him like ducking down when uh, the bandit turns to face him or something like that. But that almost makes the the last part of this movie feel even more complicated because mm-hmm. we're, like George said, we're filtering the experience of everybody through the woodcutter. But then when the woodcutter tells the story, he's not a participant in his own story. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. makes you wonder like what yeah. he views his role in the narrative as. Because he's kind of the audience surrogate.
0: For sure, yeah. yeah. Hmm. hmm. That's a good point.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Lots,
0: lots to think about.
1: <laughs> Alyssa and George thought, paused and thought about <laughs> it for a moment. <laughs> um,
2: I mean, no. I also thought about that with the medium, right? Because mm. once again, like, okay, so this guy, like, even if we take that on its own terms, that a guy is going to talk through a medium from beyond the grave... Um, Like, (laughs) it's still mediated. Literally, what a medium does is mediate a story. And so there's kind of an extra layer of every story is coming at us, not just through one telling, but through one telling, filtered through another telling, and then also filtered through this cinematic medium. So it's just like a very... Uh, you know, I, I teach postmodern theory and so a lot of times we talk about like how the stories we tell are are perspectival and how they're mediated through language and they're mediated through experience and they morph and they change and, and that's not that doesn't mean they're lying necessarily, although somebody probably is in this version of the you know, this this right. kind of a story. But um but, like being becoming aware of the levels of mediation mm-hmm. between us and stories, I think can be really good for us um, or like make us humble or something like that
1: <laughs> yeah, totally do you think that on some level there's like a there's like a we're intend I mean guess okay, it's so funny because I feel like I'm asking questions about this movie, but I'm like, oh of course this is what the movie's trying to do, but I feel like we're intended to be suspicious of everything we see, and i' I don't see that in movies at all anymore. Right. I mean, maybe some doc nonfiction style well, stuff, but yeah, you certainly know, not in fiction.
0: It's funny because one of the films that I thought about because I, I'm always thinking about this film, um but I was like, oh, Liam would like this comparison is thinking about like what how this film influenced something like Zodiac mm. Mm. and to George.
1: <laughs> Stop! <laughs> I, I, I hit Liam's
0: G spot. Like, yes, please say say Zodiac again.
1: More Zodiac talk, please. But existential detective drama. Thank you. But
0: going back to kind of what Alyssa was saying regarding the kind of let's say maybe not the postmodern approach to it, but the, thinking about also the f- the f- the film's form and how indebted it is, or how it's different. But at certain moments, it feels like it's a horror film. Like again, with mm-hmm. the rain, mm-hmm. with the medium. Um, at other times it's a crime procedural at other times it's a samurai film it just it blends all of these genres in a very interesting and obviously thoughtful and well done way and I think the form of it is also meant to replicate the kind of um, sense of not knowing what is true or what is real and what is not real and I think like Mm -hmm. on the level of form the film also replicates that in a really really brilliant way
2: yeah, and this is this is like an ongoing thing with the history of cinema and criticism and also just like the way people were trained to watch movies. So I I also watched this Altman interview um which is it runs with it on the Criterion Channel right now. Um so you can watch it there. And he does he's like, you know, people just think when they see stuff on screen that that's what happened. And I what I love about it is that it just challenges that instantly, um, like actually challenges the act of viewing, which is so great. I love it when a movie does that. And form, and you're right, like cinematic nonfiction can yeah. do it, but um, if you do that in a big movie that a lot of people will see, they they really do not appreciate it very much. Right. Um, I I just watched Funny Games for the first time. <gasps> I've literally been too scared to watch it, but I finally <laughs> watched it. Another um, movie I love. And was reminded that this is something Michael Hanukkah loves to explore as well. Um, the first Hanukkah movie I saw was uh, Caché mm-hmm. <laughs> like in the theater. Me too, actually. I didn't, yeah, didn't know what I was going into. And it's so much about that, like, Watching and being watched, but also, like, the um, the way that film itself or, like, screens, cinema, I don't know, whatever we're going to call this whole moving image medium, um, like, has trained us to believe at the things that we look at. And we are going to have to unlearn that as, like, as a mm-hmm. species. Um, yeah, whenever we kind of talk about this same thing with my students in my class, I... For years, I've been telling them, you know, deep fakes are coming, and I explain what a deep fake is, where you see something, you know you saw it with your own eyes, but it's not real. And n- now they're actually going to know what I'm talking about. But for years, they've just kind of looked at me with this, like, horror <laughs> on their face, right? But, mm-hmm. yeah
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's interesting with cachet, because I thought a little bit about, there's that theory, I don't know if anyone's ever really written about this in a lot of detail, but the theory that the person that gives... Um, George, the tape in Caché is actually Hanukkah himself.
0: Uh, dun, dun, dun.
1: And so that he's the one filming their house, which like, you know, I don't think that's... Again, this is one of those interesting things where I'm like, well, it can't be that, but it's like, it could be that. Who knows what it is? Does the tape just but arrive that, in the mail? Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hey, this isn't a Caché podcast, George. Sorry, but, um, it's just been a while. <laughs> but the idea that like maybe the... The, the person... It's, like, both true and not true at the same time that the person telling this story is Akira Kurosawa. So, like, ultimately, on some level, we're getting Akira Kurosawa's version but of But is there
0: is there, like, a thumbprint? Is there, like, an obvious moment where that... There's, like, a nod, a direct nod to that?
1: No, no, no. I don't think so. The one thing that I do think is interesting to think about with that, and this comes back to the idea of weather, is the use of the sun in this movie? Mm. Mm-hmm. Because you mentioned that the film is something of a horror movie, which I think it is. But one thing I think it does really, um, interestingly is that sometimes the most disturbing moments are the brightest Mm -hmm. as opposed to the tendency in horror films to be like, let's shroud everything in darkness and people won't know what's going around the corner. It's like, there's a moment in the film where the light hits the wife and her behavior shifts and, it feels very distinct. I believe it's in in her version of the story. Um, it's actually maybe it's in the medium's version of the story. And suddenly, everything feels different. And and that juxtaposed against the idea of like the apocalyptic weather, the mm. the water that's literally dyed with ink so that it appears on the camera to look darker in the in the Rashomon gate sequence. Like I sometimes like feel like when you talk about a directorial hand, and this is sort of like coming back to what we. Uh, in some ways, just directing in general. But I feel Akuru Kurosawa in the in the way he uses the weather and the lighting in this movie. Hmm.
0: Yeah, the natural elements, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and them not being used in the most obvious ways. Yeah,
0: I really thought, it's watching it again, I really thought the interplay of like the light and the shadows and the forest were meant to be, again, this kind of formal or this aesthetic nod to, again, the um confusion in the film right like a light dark truth truth versus lies that kind of thing it's like oh yeah mm-hmm. like this is amazing like the way he's using it in the forest is again meant to replicate our kind of um uncertainty about what's unfolding
2: mm-hmm. they also said um i i heard in some interviews that it was <laughs> it was just very dark in the forest to begin <laughs> with it's like a very leafy forest and so <laughs> Um, so they had to use mirrors to reflect light onto um, uh. onto the actors, which they uh, stole from costume, um, which is a great use of your costume, department. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, that is pretty cool. But it does, I mean, the light does have that kind of odd reflective um, quality to it in some places, especially. It's just very, yeah, like you are saying, it's very bright and also very dark, and it made me think of kind of like a Rembrandt um, self-portrait where it's like, you know, the man we present to the world and the man we actually are, Mm. um, to ourselves. Um, I, I don't know that I think this was really incidental to needing mirrors to reflect light in a very (laughs) dark forest, but, um, but yeah, it's very much in that, in that realm. And it means that all of these images are obviously beautifully composed, but, um, but they all have more, much more going on in them, I think, than, you would think for a movie with so few characters in them and often there's only one character in frame um and yet there's you know there's like stuff in the background or you know in those interrogation scenes when they're talking to us there's always like two guys (laughs) sitting in the back corner also listening so that we're we're not just having it an encounter we're also being listened to um during this interrogation
1: I think one of the things that stood out to me this time in addition to that sort of the stuff that's like cultural baggage and I don't think I... Or this cultural baggage meaning stuff that we've seen and that's inherited from this movie and passed mm. on to so many others is my the one thing that really struck me this time was the role of the wife in this movie. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, the, You know, to like use contemporary... Sort of thinking about it There's some real moments Where it feels like There's like Slut shaming Uh And other moments Where She's You know She's sort of Portrayed as this woman That wants to have sex With anyone that'll have her And she's like Mm -hmm. Deprived But then at the end In the final Final Woodcutter story It's almost like She's the one With power Ultimately But then Mm -hmm. that shifts I just found it very um, Like Disturbingly Culturally relevant And also more challenging than I remember from like most people do. I feel like Mifune from this movie. I didn't, the the wife didn't stand out to me when I saw it 12 years ago, this time I was sort of blown away by the role of the wife in this movie. It stood out to Mm. me more than anything else.
2: Yeah. I was struck by, um, as well by her in this one. Um, I think because the first time through, I was trying so hard to get a handle on what she was doing, forgetting that, you know, these are essentially, different versions of a person but um but her it's almost like she's she's become in the last recounting the kind of maniacal character that we've been Mm -hmm. told the bandit is um throughout um and they do kind of seem to trade places with one another a little bit depending on who's telling the story um and i don't know the history of like the storytelling tradition that this movie falls into um outside of the like the cinema sort of reflective of French Mm -hmm. or European cinema, but um, I don't know it as well, but I think that those characters that belong to these different sorts, you know, we've got like the evil one and the foolish one and the like weak one or whatever, Um, seeing them rotate around and seeing her become those different characters is so striking, um, you know, for, for various reasons. But yeah, when she's laughing in the last sequence, um, it's very reminiscent of how, you know, the the bandit is laughing when he's being questioned earlier mm-hmm. in the film. Um, just totally unhinged.
1: <laughs> yeah, and there's almost this weird quality of, like, she seems as though, well, I mean, I think that this is apparent, but this is a film of men, and, like, so many of mm-hmm. Kurusawa's movies are about men, and she feels as though she's treated differently by in that sequence where she's telling her story, and sometimes it's like she's hysterical in a way that they're not hysterical. But then, the fact that in um, Tojimaru's version of the story, there it's like a it's like a sword fight, mm. and it's really yeah, and they're good fighters, and he like compliments the samurai's fighting style. And then in the woodcutter's version, they're like two little boys. It's like if George and I got yeah. into a fight, just like two people <laughs> slapping each other, feels like very. It feels pointed. Like to me, this feels like there's a little bit of cultural critique of masculinity by Kurosawa mm-hmm. in this movie. Yep.
0: Well, that last yeah. sequence too is the one where they're they're all presented as being really shitty. Obviously, whereas in, in obviously when they're telling their side of the story, they are kind of valorizing or they're putting themselves in the role of the hero. But in mm-hmm. the woodcutter's version, they're all terrible.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Although the woman seems to be, <laughs> like, at least she kind of knows what she wants and mm-hmm. she's going to get it, uh, which is the the sort of uh, the anti-hero version yeah. of her, I guess, um, or something, whereas the men are just... I mean, there's so much tripping.
1: <laughs> so much tripping and falling. <laughs> like, and just it's like, like Chaplin-esque. <laughs>
2: yeah, why can't you run? What's wrong with you? She has no trouble with it. She's not the one falling all over the place. They are. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like she's this kind of, like, figure of chaos in every version of the story, including her own, yeah. where... Yeah you know, like, she's, she, like, men in a world of men, like, you have a bandit and you have a samurai and they're in the forest and, like, they kind of know what to do and she's, like, this element of whatever, um, Mm -hmm. whether it's, like, passion or fear or um, like, shame or this sort of, like, maniacal anger um, over, like, the lot that she's been dealt in life. Um, That Yeah, that's, that feels, I think, why she's so sparkling and memorable and because and there's only other one other woman in the whole story and she's just a voice you know she's mm-hmm. just a conduit for a man so um so yeah
1: yeah and it, well, it's interesting also because you know whenever you read about kurosawa it's there's always a point made that like there was only one female lead in a Kurusawa movie, and it's Tsukahara in No Gr- Regrets for Our Youth, which is also kind of a movie, which is a movie ultimately about a woman sort of like coming into her own and figuring out how to live. And like, it's interesting, although the wife is not the lead in this film, she takes up a she takes a really prominent role, and and in some ways is the most I think dynamically different character in each version of the story. Well, that's and it's mm-hmm. also
0: her, but her rape is also the only crime that we're sure that exist in all four versions because mm-hmm. even in the samurai's own version oh yeah right it's not a murder it's a suicide
1: mm-hmm. so
0: it's also interesting mm-hmm. to think yeah again like um thinking about how it is that her story and the crime against her is in many respects like the central um action right or the thing that that binds all of these stories together like the one thing they agree on is that she was the victim of this crime
2: mm-hmm and yet I'm not totally convinced that's what the um, what they're talking about in the sort of framing story when they oh, say totally. you know yeah I uh, this is uh w- w- this like, like this is worse than all the wars and all of the pestilence and whatever this this is the thing that has shaken my faith in man and I don't know that it's ever clear whether the fact that they can't decide what the real story is 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 what's so shaking um them or whether it's because there's so many levels of distrust or what what exactly that is
1: it's also interesting in that context again it's like i totally forgot about this framing device that there it's Tash- takashi Shimura who you know is in like every kurosawa movie and is was probably f- like 22 when they made this movie but looks like, <laughs> 65 and <laughs> next to this um this commoner figure who's sort of like the cynical figure of the film and doesn't doesn't like whenever he hears the story is so like yeah of course like yeah people are terrible and then this priest who actually seems like he's 22 or 23 years old and it's it's just interesting to come back to the idea that like the conduit through which we're hearing the story is through the woodcutter mm-hmm. and so it it this time I felt like again more more comp everything felt more complicated like the wife has a line at one point in the story when she says to have my shame known to two men is worse than dying (laughs) and it's so dramatic but like part of me in 2020 is watching that and i'm just like rolling my eyes because it's just like well clearly a dude is telling this story (laughs)
2: yes (laughs) yes and later later someone's like you've you've slept with two men why don't you kill yourself
0: I oh yeah like,
1: <laughs> the, hu- the husband right yeah I think the husband yeah, yeah.
2: I think so yeah mm-hmm. we um <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> we've been accused of having like two sort of two like contemporary a read on these movies but it's impossible not to like hear that and be like
2: Uh Uh-huh.
1: Come on. But then you feel like maybe he's commenting on it as much as he's presenting it. I mean, the whole movie is kind of commenting on itself Mm -hmm. on some level.
0: Yeah, and go back to what Alyssa said. It's interesting if you think about the fact that the only other woman in the film is the medium whose body is possessed by a man. So the possession of, like, women's bodies in this film is a very interesting, you know, Mm -hmm. like, subplot or uh, through line to all four of these stories.
1: My favorite... Favorite moment in the movie is when she's like you guys should kill each other when <laughs> he like, yeah. just found that like unusually like I was like yeah <laughs> do it
2: you guys suck and we're so sick of those guys i feel like at that point 100%. That it's like, yes please for the love of god <laughs>
0: i'm really sick of the husband and when like because i forget in, in whose narrative it is but at some point she's basically like listen you have to save me from this boring fucking samurai this guy's lame he sucks yeah, this
1: guy's so he's so, so square
0: like please do something to save I'm me i'm so <laughs>
1: bored get me out of here <laughs> like, that might be is that her version of it i can't remember at this point but i think it's his. Um, version. it might be, I think it's it, it might be yeah it sounds like it's his version yeah. of of the thing speaking of him I don't think I appreciated, maybe because we're watching these films in order, that this is the first time, for lack of a, you know, to, to be simple about it, where we see Mafune really Mifune it up. Because mm. so many of the performances before this, he's very with, with, withdrawn and reserved. And just, like, I love the idea that, like, on day one of shooting, he, like, did a take, and Crusoe was like, Toshiro, come here. And he was like, come on. Like, just let it out Like, do the thing that we've wanted you to do Because he's, like, he told him to play, like, a, a lion And
0: uh-huh. it's just
1: such a extreme Sometimes hard to watch And I don't mean that negatively I mean, like, he's so intense That at times you're like It's really off-putting to watch Which I think was a response that the movie got when it came out People were like, what is this acting? Who is this Mafune guy? It's just such a extreme performance
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm
1: and I, I, I just, I don't think we've seen it, I mean, going chronologically. It's it's so clear that this is, like, what they decided on going forward in a lot of the more, like, iconic hmm. roles. Yeah. And he's so inflated, and I think that's interesting. He has such an inflated sense of self, like, his version of the story, being like, Yeah, I'm a pretty good swordsman. I forgot about that <laughs> expensive sword. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and yet, he's such a, he's such a, like... I, I was noticing how much even his affect changes in the last version. He's like such a sad sack yeah. in the last version. Not not just cuz he keeps tripping over his own yeah, feet, right. but like his his face changes. Um right. and he looks terrified. He's scared, yeah. Uh Yeah. It feels it does feel like something out of silent film where you would have been telegraphing or broadcasting um who, like what's going on in yeah. your head um without having a way to say it.
1: I think it's interesting that what we what at least I remember about the movie is the sort of exuberant, maniacal Mifune and not that, like, pathetic, sad, kind of, like, different take where he's begging her to marry him. Like, it's interesting how the thing we remember is the sort of, like, the most bravado and the Mm -hmm. most kind of, like, hey, what's up, kind of, or whatever version of that 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 is. The most, like, traditionally masculine version of it is the one Mm -hmm. that sticks out and has been, like, celebrated culturally, not the kind of, like, beta-ish... Ugh, nervous character that he is in the second half If that's the right way to describe it mm-hmm. Let, I want to chat chat Briefly about the uh, That there's a great line In the movie which is said by the most Cynical characters the commoner which he says is I don't care if it's a lie as long as it's entertaining <laughs> Right mm. Which you know we're talking I mean not to make this Too not to make this like a political conversation Necessarily but one of the things that's been Sitting in my brain since we since we Since I watched the film last week Is like, how we're living in this, like, world right now where everyone is seeing some of the same images and they're having completely different interpretations of what they're seeing. And I couldn't help but, like, I know this is simple and, but, like, that line resonating with me, like, the week of the Republican National Convention and the idea of, like, well, who cares if it's true? Like, we have a showman telling us a story. Mm Mm-hmm. And it grosses me out that that's what I thought about, but it, it makes the film feel really politically resonant in this moment.
2: Yeah. And I'm not even sure there's been a time when people haven't felt like that was going on. Not mm. to say it's not escalated, um, but I've been reading a lot of um, political history from the sixties and um, it's pretty wild how much the stuff that people say is very much an echo of, of what we say today, mm. even though it's for different circumstances. And I think, You know, this movie is set not contemporaneously to its, to the, you know, the actual Mm -hmm. time that it came out in, obviously. So it's like an old, old story. Um, And so that, in addition, I think makes it feel kind of timeless. And I think that's also maybe something that's really great about the framing device as well, is that it feels like, you can imagine the legend where it's like three strangers happened mm. upon one another one rainy night. Like that just sounds like something that,
1: like a fairy tale. Yeah,
2: like a fairy tale. Yeah, and it's or like a like a myth or a something. Parable, and so, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think I, I can easily imagine that way a folk tale. Um, and that a um, that a story like that would continue to have so much resonance for today. I think is is a feature, not a bug. Like I don't think. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're supposed to just leave it in the past. I think we're supposed to carry it with us into the present and the future, um, and that that seems like doing a film like this a service. Um, mm-hmm. in, in sort of instead of sort of uh, fixing it, you know, like a mosquito in amber or something, or like,
1: like a that. Mis- um, uh, like a museum piece that we yeah. only watch it like mo- like yeah for sure. Well, it's mm-hmm. it's also interesting when you think about the framing device, and this is something I thought about. Is it made me think a little bit about the f- the framing device in um, I almost said 10 things I hate about you, but in The Taming of the Shrew, my God. Uh,
2: well, I mean... <laughs> yeah,
1: of course. That, that kind of framing device that immediately gets excised any time you see the play, like the, the drunken mm-hmm. guy being told the story as he sobers up is, is really interesting. But it also mm-hmm. has like almost a Brechtian quality where it's like three people meet and they tell each other a story. It's very theatrical, and it's yeah. very like theatrical theater commenting on itself, theatrical... Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sitting in front of a fire and I'm going to tell you a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Very uh, turn of the screw, if anybody's...
1: Mm. Oh. Yeah. Mm.
0: But it, it, huh. it's funny because I also read that line as a commentary, again, on uh, film itself. So
1: mm-hmm. that
0: there's obviously a, a certain mm. sense of verisimilitude to any sort of film because it's just put down the camera, catch what ha- happens in front of it. Obviously, it's planned. It might not be planned, whatever, but there's an automatic sense of it being real. And mm-hmm. I just found, I just thought it was like, oh, a, like Kurosawa here is also commenting on the experience of, again, watching the film. I know it's a lie, but as long as that's entertaining, I could care less. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah there's a lot <laughs> 45 minutes in guys God, this, film this, this film might be complicated
0: this film might
1: be a complicated film but we haven't even touched on
0: the spirituality of it uh, the humanist that kind of take on it mm. the fact that in the original version by the way the look um the priest and the woodcutter are like oh is there like a name tag in the baby and the one guy goes oh yeah it says here it's um baby hitler Dun, dun, <laughs> I
1: was. And then
0: second, I was like, "Wait, there's a name tag on yeah. the
1: baby." And then
0: Rashomon Two, which never got made, but they have to decide whether or not they would actually kill Baby Hitler. So that's Rashomoner. Rashomoner. <laughs> that's the name of
1: it. Rashomon Two. Rashomon.
2: I've just been watching all of the Bill and Ted movies for oh, obvious reasons. So, yes. um, yeah, I can't
1: we'll wait. Just- I am yes. very excited about. So have you seen the third Rashomon.
0: one? So you haven't seen. I
2: have seen the third and? one. It is it is delightful. Oh, I yes. honestly wasn't expecting much because of um, <laughs> because of those stupid things critics do, where they're like, they're only giving us the screener two days before it comes out. It must be a terrible movie, but actually, it's great. Um, good, totally see it. It'd be a really good drive-in movie if you have access to that. It's gonna feel um,
1: like a warm hug.
2: Yes, it, it uh. will. It it very much will.
1: You know, I did not anticipate us talking about Bill and Ted 3 when talking about Rashomon, but I'm going to tell you guys, I'm into it. I think that's really great. Um, You know, one thing we've talked about uh, at the end, of as we wrap up the episode, is we usually will do a thing where we'll be like, but who is the titular stray dog? Mm. And obviously, we can't really do, it's like, who is the titular Rashomon? Doesn't really make sense. But one thing that I'm sort of curious about is like, do you guys feel like this movie has a central or, like, a main character? And I feel like someone who, like, you view as being who the movie is ultimately about. And I feel like that could lead into maybe a brief conversation about the ending. Because I I have mixed feelings on the ending of the movie as well.
2: I mean, in a way, I feel like the movie is about the, the priest mm. <laughs> um, who sort of doesn't really participate in this except to just like (laughs) be sent into this like state of existential despair and then have sort of his mind changed by this thing that happens. But I don't know if it counts as main character, but he certainly is the one who goes through actual development as a character in the course of the, of the movie that isn't flashbacks. Oh no, I would say he's the only one. Um, And also we're assuming I mean, and again, immediately we make the assumption that the framing device itself were meant to take as actually happening, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I found myself thinking about him because of that. Um, and because he's in such a state of like, he's just so despairing when we first mm. meet him. He's like, you know, this thing has conquered even even a wise priest. Um, and then by the end, he's changed his mind. Although the last person we see is like, you know, the woodcutter trudging away with the baby. So maybe that's, maybe that's mm. significant too.
1: The woodcutter feels on some level, like potentially who the movie is about, but I, I think you're right in that he doesn't change in the course of the film. Like he doesn't go through a kind of evolution. Like to my mind, he's just as likely at the beginning of the film to take the baby under his wing as he is at the end of the film, and I struggle with that ending. I actually don't know if I I dislike it. I like the hope. I think I'm into the hope. I think it's like a, a real necessary uh, thing, especially because you're just sitting there for 85 minutes. Like, my God. But also, it. it f- I hate to say this about what I think is a really, really amazing movie, is that it sometimes feels as though the ending might be slightly unearned. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, why do we get... I mean, no one's going to kill a baby... Unless they're like Lars von, well, unless they're Lars von Trier, but it just feels hard to just literally kills a baby in a movie. It just feels. Are hard you admitting, to like, Liam,
0: that you wouldn't kill Baby Hitler right now on the podcast? I think we we verified we've the fact that about, it's Baby Hitler.
1: We'll cover this on our other podcast, Baby Hitler. Um, yeah, I, I, it it just feels a little unearned. I don't know, George. What do you think?
0: No, again, yeah, the ending is the weakest part, but I don't. It doesn't ruin the film for me at all. No. Unlike those stupid bells at the end of fucking Breaking the Waves. <laughs> God damn those bells. Anyway, no, I love I love that film. That film's amazing. I
1: okay. love the bells yeah. at the end of Breaking the Waves. The,
0: the, the film, Get out of here. film is so My good.
2: my own ending ruins the movie is the end of Rosemary's Baby, a movie I love, but the end I'm like, No. Yeah, so the
1: ending good. of that is Wait, cool. what's that the that ending one's... of that again?
2: Though well, then she finds out, in fact, yes, it was a devil oh. baby and he's been stolen by but I think it's so much better if you're like is she crazy? Is if it ends the scene
1: earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, be a better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. So, what did you guys talk about on the Rashomon podcast? <laughs> well, mostly Bill and Ted <laughs> Three and <laughs> forgot. and Lars Von Trier. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky ending. It's a tricky movie. Like I really sometimes when we talk about these movies, it's like we're talk we're we're obviously talking about movies that are seventy years old, but this one feels incredibly contemporary it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like it's aged a moment Mm -hmm. well it's
0: so influential too you see its influence in so many different kind in so many different films
2: yeah I mean it it pops up in the way that I mean I'm sure if you talk to someone like Quentin Tarantino about how he deals with truth he he would mention this movie or maybe he wouldn't but he should he should Um, yeah Um, and like the look of it the way like shots are designed I was I was really flabbergasted to see how there's just a lot at the beginning of this movie of the woodcutter walking through the yes. woods. Like he walks for a long yes. time, and then we're like in front of him, and we're behind him, and but then there's a bit where the camera kind of swings around him, which is like pretty hard to do in the woods where you have trees. And it turns out he's the one swinging around the track, um, which is just like a very amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. it's amazing. I don't the even know how you
1: those sequences are. In, it's very odd. And, like just it's the so way the great. camera. Mm-hmm. Like moves around it It's kind of insane
0: mm-hmm. Very Dante-esque
2: Yeah
1: yeah. Halfway
0: through my life's Stop. journey I found myself in a dark wood uh,
1: I, oh. I'm gonna just confess that I, My brain went to Joe Dante It was like Gremlins it's like the Gremlins guy I wow. uh, so just watched that the first, yeah. for the first time Recently too <laughs> Which so. one of you guys is the academic Gremlins um, 1 or Gremlins 2 Gremlins 2 the one. new band. Yeah, of course. yeah. <laughs> What's there's this? only one gremlins wait no there's two, there's two. um there's two yeah i was thinking it's weird that the i was thinking like what are other movies that that do the rashomon thing that i think mm. are really interesting and i watched it in the past two years and it's not a good movie but the sequences that copy this are really good and i thought of brian de palma's snake eyes
2: ah. Ooh, i have not yeah. seen that
1: oh it's it's not... Well, it's great. It's vintage 90s Nicolas Cage just, like, overdoing it. And the filmmaking is amazing. Mm. But it, it does two or three versions of the same story from multiple perspectives. And, like, before the movie devolves into something else, mm. which is which is just, like, a, a bad Brian De Palma serial killer movie, it's a pretty... That opening Rashomon-esque sequence is really, really incredible. Mm. And worth well, checking out.
2: I will always stand for Gone Girl um a mm. movie i really like um but also a movie that has so much more going on visually than i think a lot of people realize because they you know mm. there's just all these subtle cues throughout that we're getting the irashman effect i kind of don't i feel like everybody knows what that movie is but um but yeah i mean that there were that we're getting two versions of a story is actually signaled super early in the movie um i don't remember the specific signals right now um
1: I have to watch it again. I don't remember any of that.
2: Yeah, Fincher does it to us, um, and he 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 buries it. And it there's a little bit of that in the book as well, but not in the way that the movie pulls it off. It's really very smart what he does.
1: I saw that at BAM,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, when, like right when it opened. I remember being like, "Wow, that was cool," and I haven't seen it since. But like that is a that's a primo rewatch movie. George, yes. do you have a favorite Rashomon? rashomon ish -ish movie no i don't um but cool (laughs) (laughs) but
0: Alyssa's comparison i think to tarantino's films is interesting and it's definitely applicable to think about let's say something like pulp fiction which Mm -hmm. obviously isn't competing narratives of exactly the same moment but it plays i mean at certain moments it does play with that Mm -hmm.
1: but to think Mm -hmm. about the fragmentary nature what was that hateful eight
0: hateful eight hateful Does eight doesn't more too. yeah i think
1: mm-hmm. we're contractually obligated to to not talk about quentin tarantino for more than one moment at this podcast <laughs> or we, we we really venture into stereotype um alissa it has been great to have you on thank the you alissa
2: it's, yeah it's been great and thanks for Thanks for coaxing me into rewatching Rashomon. Uh,
1: we we do what we can. Um, <laughs> you do you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast, which I've been listening to and really enjoying? Sure.
2: Yeah. Um, it is fairly new. I think we're maybe two months in. So my friend Sam and I, um, who are both we're both journalists, we both write about culture, and we both grew up uh, in very conservative evangelical families, and so. Uh, we we talk about how we have the same brainworms, and so we um, <laughs> we c- we created a podcast called Young Adult Movie Ministry, which is meant to be a bit cheeky um, for people who went to something called that or near mm-hmm. it um, when they were young. And we talk about movies and Christianity uh, mostly um, in various permutations. So, like the first time, first episode, we talked about the late Great Planet Earth. Um, mm-hmm. we've talked about the Narnia movies. We just did a episode on hail Caesar with AO Scott. Um, we were kind of going all over the map movies that are plausibly related in some way. We did a really long exor- uh, exorcist episode. That was really great. Um, mm. so it comes out weekly. Uh, there's subscriber only episodes, uh, as well, but most of them are not. And you can find us at, uh, young adult, movie ministry.com or we're on Instagram and Twitter and uh yeah you can you can find us there
1: and we will be sure to link to it in the notes so people awesome. can find it um I loved your hail Caesar episode um <laughs> George you have to listen to it it's I have to, dialectic I materialism to it. baby it's like yeah. it's like right in your you haven't seen hail Caesar you, oh it's so good
0: every time I say this you're like <laughs> you're like you haven't podcast seen podcast you know? it's on
1: Cancel, Netflix so um
2: <laughs> Yeah, no, we, it's great. It's about, yeah, it's about dialectical materialism, Christianity, and
0: Hollywood. All right, tonight, tonight's the night. Oh my God, yeah, That's no,
1: seriously, tonight, <laughs> tonight, tonight, tonight <laughs> you have to. Um, I watched it re- recently because I moved out to LA and my wife got a job at Warner Brothers and I was like sitting in the house in the like, you know, without a job. And I was like, oh, I'm going to watch Hell Caesar. And then I was like, holy shit, they shot this whole movie on the Warner lot, like just uh-huh. the bare naked Warner lot. So I like watched it and then went over there and walked around um, with her and I was like, this is... <laughs> Yeah, it's an amazing movie. It's a movie that could stand up to like an entire podcast devoted to it. There's oh, yeah. so much going on in it, so definitely worth a listen. I really enjoyed it. Um, well, that's it for us. We next up on the show, we're going to talk about the idiot Kurosawa's mm-hmm. adaptation of Dostoyevsky with A.S. Hamra, the Baffler.
0: Can't Threat.
1: wait who actually, when we asked him to be on the show, was like, can I talk about The Idiot? <laughs> I was like, sure. And no one else <laughs> has asked to talk about that movie. So 100%. <laughs> um, and if you are uh, new to this, new to a listener to the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you do it, preferably on Apple Podcasts. That's the best place to review the show. And we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ooverbusters. Right now, there, is a, there will be an episode up on The Dirty Dozen, going back to our John Cassafetti's stuff the dirty dozen so good so, so. good so awesome. good Alyssa thank you so much for for doing this yeah thanks again Alyssa. Thank it's you. been great to have you um I was Liam Billingham depending on who you ask I might have been George Vergopoulos oh
2: I guess I was Alyssa Wilkinson
1: <laughs> you guys were a lot more creative than me this was Ouvrebuster. nice nice cool